Mr. Little, can I ask why you came forward in this case? I told the police what I know. Were you offered anything in exchange? Like what? Were you arrested? Were you going to be charged with a crime? And by testifying, did the police agree to drop those charges? No, man, ain't even about that. You say you aren't here testifying against the defendant because of any deal you made with police. True that. That you're here because you, you, you want to tell the truth about what happened to Mr. Gant in that housing project parking lot. Yep. You are a moral, are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. You got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? Giving Jimmy an eight-life sentence, I don't think he deserved that. And I don't think he was treated fairly in the criminal justice system, either. Previously on Born Felon. The braggadocio bullshit that's attached to questionable lyrics. Questionable in respect to whether the shit you talking about, the grandiose braggadocio shit that you're talking about is actually true or not. And I think that reflects right down to this case. Because we deal with a whole lot of hip-hop elite drug dealers that then shipped a hundred bricks across the country and that's how they live this hip-hop lifestyle. And this is bullshit. They're talking about somebody they heard about. So, you know, for them to try to attribute that to someone in real life without real actual facts and not just hearsay compares all of this to the grandiose bullshit that hip-hop is built on. This particular case warranted the 10-year mandatory minimum for several of the people involved. That 10-year mandatory minimum should have been applicable to him, as it was available to many of the people, along with the deal that was offered by the government, which suggests that <laughs> you'd be home already, as some of these people are. I'm not suggesting that the people that are home should not be home. I'm suggesting that he should be suffering the same consequences then. Maybe he should be home already, too. He didn't deserve uh -huh. a life sentence for doing the same thing they did. Fast money, drugs, hip-hop, and headlines. The culmination of the government's four-year investigation entered the hallow halls of justice of the Eastern District of New York with a star-studded trial. James Rosemont, first the United States of America. You heard that right. When you face those United States attorneys at trial, you are facing the mighty weight of the corrupt U.S. government and all their sordid tools to uphold justice. While Jimmy stood trial for moving a few kilos of cocaine, Mexican cartel heads moved tons across the American border with impunity, backed by power, and corruption. James Rosemont is the United States justice system band-aid. A joke, really, when you put it into context of the war on drugs. Jimmy went to trial. He had no choice. And he had a 3% chance of winning 
as it relates to convictions in the Eastern District. Here it is, the worst, the worst drug law that they have on the books. They gave it to me. The worst yeah. one. Like, there's no other higher yeah. drug count in the United States of America. Yeah. And, and, and I got that. And, and you would, like, again, like I said in the email, you would have thought that, um, that they were talking about somebody else. $10 million in sales from cocaine. That is what the government has to prove in order to say James Rosemont was a drug kingpin. A very clear burden of proof. And like he said, managing $10 million worth of coke, I can't imagine is an easy job that you just phone in. For me to run an organization that the way they said I ran it, I would have had to every day be a part of that organization. I would have yeah. had to know the intricate parts of that organization. I would have had to, you know, have some kind of hand in it, especially for the charge. And if you leave the, the, the element of the charge, that I would have had to be the principal, um, leader, manager, and, and, and organizer of that organization. There's no way that I could have done all of that. And, yeah. and, and so, so in, in, in retrospect, I know that them jurors couldn't have put all that together and, and to say that I made $10 million a year or uh, gross that much a year from, from this because I, I wouldn't have been able to do nothing else. If they ever had got the other side of the picture of what I did every day, what I got up and what I went to work and did and the people that I was in touch with and who I rubbed shoulders with, they would have known that there's no way that I could have been some leader of some organization, a bi-coastal organization, and, and so on and so forth. There's just no way. There were times in the trial where I just wanted to get up and said, hold on, hold on, guys, let's pause this for a minute. Who's, who are y'all talking about on trial right now? Because it's sure enough, they weren't talking about me. They created a whole other character that didn't even exist, that only existed in the imagination of of boys and girls <laughs> who believe in, in boogeyman. And they created that for the jury to they so skillfully too. They created that and the jury brought into it. Do you know why? Was that ever explained? What happened what happened was um we felt strategically that it would be better that Kaminsky didn't try the case. It was almost the reverse of what they did to me with um, Jeff Lickman. We figured um, he had another trial, him and Carolyn Bacconi. Those were the two prosecutors that was pushing the issue for, for my um, trial and for my prosecution. So what happened was they were about to go to trial for a senator or a councilman named Espada. And um, yeah. we knew that. So they tried to move my trial date to a later date after their trial with Senator Espada. So what I ended up doing, or what me and Chagall said, maybe it's good that we rush the trial so that they can't be involved, being that they've been investigating me for four years, just like how Jeff Lickman was involved with the investigation for four years on my side. 
um, said, okay, we let them get some new attorneys, prosecutors to come in and try me, and maybe they won't be as in tune with the case as um, Todd and Carol McConey will be. And that didn't prove true because, um, I mean, they put three of their top females on it. Um, and these, these prosecutors were like the, the top guys or the top girls in that office who, um, who took on the case and studied it and prosecuted it. You know, they put Henry Butler to claim he was my supplier in Los Angeles. And, um, he goes on to talk about various drug deals, fictitious drug deals that he had with me in 2010 and 2009. And it, looking looking at everyone that took the stand, whether it was Henry Butler, whether it was Khalil, whether it was Muhammad Stewart, who do you think did the most damage or was the witness that hurt the most in terms of the case? I think all of them did their part, but I think Winston Harris with the tape um, and then saying that I, you know, he gave me his last 300000 and saying that I gave him 80 kilos at one time and so on and so forth. Um, I think he did a lot of damage. I think that Khalil Abdullah setting me up and them forfeiting that into the puzzle of things. They, there was a pity factor with Brian James, who was a cripple, who came on the stand and said that um, he heard, overheard me having a drug conversation in a crowded restaurant while he was sitting 15 feet away from me. I think they felt sorry for him because he made it seem like I used him to a certain extent. And I think all of them played a part of sticking a dagger into me. In, in their own way. Was there um, anyone out of the the whole bunch that surprised you that they were even sitting up there in the box? Or was it a case of all of them? Brian James. I, I never met this guy. So you had never even come in contact with Brian James? I never. But one time he was going to meet with Khalil Abdullah and I walk out of the mosque with Khalil for Friday prayers and he was meeting with Khalil and I didn't know who he was and so we went to eat at a restaurant named Amy Roof in Harlem. I was wondering who the guy was because he, he pretty he had a bad bad limp. He was like a cripple. When we got into the restaurant we were talking we were talking loud but for some reason, Khalil had him sit at another um, another table. It wasn't no no drug conversation. We were just having fun, talking, eating. It was in the daytime, like maybe three, four o'clock in the in the in the afternoon. Um, so it wasn't like we were drinking liquor or anything. We were drinking Kool Aid and iced tea and eating pancakes and and waffles and chicken and stuff like that and the guy turned that into a a full-fledged drug meeting and i just couldn't believe it months after that he got arrested for with some drugs that um i guess khalil had coming in he says that i'm the boss and he worked for me and next thing i know this guy's on the stand and i didn't know him
in federal cases, and especially conspiracy cases and drug cases, the use of witnesses by the United States attorney is an art form. I've witnessed many times in mafia cases or drug cases where witnesses will take the stand and have never met the main criminal defendants on trial. What the government does is they use these witnesses saying they were part of the organization. And therefore, even though they never met the boss or other members of the criminal hierarchy, they can still be used at trial to convince a jury that there were nefarious acts. And it works. The average jury member wants to believe that the prosecutors wouldn't lie in court. They took an oath, right? But these US attorneys, they lie. They lie like it's their job because nothing matters, just winning. Let me tell you, I was very shocked at Winston who lied on the stand after all I've done for him. I literally, after his testimony, shed tears because here go a guy I know from I've been seven years old who sat there and demonstrated, got out of his chair, showed maps and claimed this and that, and it really hurt me, man, to see him do that to me, man. There were even one time that I ran into Khalil Abdullah in the um, bullpen um, before he testified, and I asked him, I asked him why was he doing this to me, and I asked him, I said, wow, if you hated me that much, why didn't you just kill me? You know, and I, my logic was my family would have been able to visit my grave site, say a prayer, and then move on with their life. But I said, not only did you steal these people money, and then you set me up with the rest, rest of the money, but now you're looking to give me a life sentence. And not only are you trying to give me a life sentence, you're going to make my family do life with me. Because it ain't only me who's doing life right now. My family is doing life too. Now they come visit me in jail and they're going through the hardships of me being in jail for the rest of my life. And he couldn't say nothing to me. He just remained silent. But when he got on the stand, and I can say this about all of the witnesses, when they all got on the stand, they testified on me like, I must have harmed their firstborn. They performed like lap dogs, like I've never seen before. And you can see them being desperate because the prosecutor has so much power that their freedom or them spending life in jail all hinged on how they performed on that stand against me. And that's all that counted to the prosecutor. And I could see them being in that dilemma. Maybe they really didn't want to do this to me, but the option was either do this to Jimmy or you go down with me. And every cooperator that I've talked to and every snitch that testified on people that I've talked to have told me it sure do feel better sitting in that seat where they sat at and testified than sitting where I was at being testified against.
Jimmy talks about these harsh drug sentences, and they are harsh. They're draconian. And what exactly are these laws doing? Last time I checked, cartel violence is ravaging Mexico. The amount of drugs that flood the streets today continues to multiply. The amount of drug abuse is rising. Everyone knows that the war on drugs has fucking failed. And guess what? The criminal justice system of today is merely a business. A machine that imprisons, a machine that decimates communities, and a machine that is continually broken with no end in sight. Jimmy had the money to at least put up a fight, but most offenders are given overworked public attorneys who plead them to long jail sentences for a product people can't get enough of. Because they know that the cards are so stacked. And when somebody comes to you, when you're facing these harsh drug laws, when you're facing these harsh sentences, and you say, look, the, the difference between you testifying on Jimmy or not is you doing 20 years in jail or you going home in three years. Which one do you want to do? Obviously, they're going to pick the one where they, they go home in three years. And that was the road that each and every one of those witnesses took. Outside of Khalil, who actually set me up, who put me in jail, who put himself in jail, um, everyone else probably was in a position of where they had an ultimatum, either testify on me or go to jail for a, a, a harsh amount of time. I wish I could say Jimmy was exaggerating or not telling the truth. I read all the trial transcripts and listened to all the tapes. Any evidence was minimal. And to be honest, I don't think the government ever proved that Jimmy made millions selling drugs. The evidence that convicted Jimmy was the word and story of the five individuals that allegedly worked for Jimmy in his organization. That's it. How long do you think they were recording your phone calls? What type of evidence did you see in the courtroom that was gained by that? Nothing. They had no tapes. Nothing of me. Nothing. When I tell you nothing, it was all testimony from the thing. It wasn't nothing with maybe a fingerprint. Because some of these guys would say I would actually handle the drug that money that was sent to los angeles that they said i packed myself that they would check for fingerprints where not even a fingerprint of mine was on but it was only the testimony of the witnesses that they used so all of the money and the drugs that they had in the courtroom none of that belonged to me and that's what i got life for through through testimony of individuals who wanted to get time cuts and who was seeking leniency. And sure enough, the prosecutor upheld their part of the deal because every single one of them is home right now. When you're sitting in court, made you shake your head or was the whole experience a one of bafflement? It just seemed like a, some out-of-body kind of experience. You know, to see people who you know, to see the prosecutor lead the witness into saying certain, certain things. Listen, anybody could have gotten up there and all they had to do 
were filling the blank. They would say things like, the money that Jimmy's brother got stopped with 800000 on a California highway. Um, whose money was that? All a person had to say was, it was Jimmy. And when you was filmed going into um, the bank doing so-and-so, who told you to do that? Oh, Jimmy told me to do that. And it was a rehearsed stage show that I was hoping that the jurors uh, rehearsed. And all these guys have to do is point the finger at me. And that's how the prosecutors told their story. Everything that happened in between Khalil, my brother, Henry Butler, and it had to do with drugs. All they had to say was, yeah, that was Jimmy's. That was Jimmy's money. Yeah, Jimmy sent that money to me. Yeah, Jimmy gave me that money. Well, I sent that drugs to Jimmy. That's all they had to say. They just had to fill in the blank with J-I-M-M-Y. I'm wondering, are they talking about me? Because I'm like, damn, that date, I was in London. Or, or this other date, I was in Paris. Or this other date, I was in Africa. Or this other date, I was over here. And I was over there. Or I was in California. I was in North Carolina. But the jurors, you know, what I, what, what they, they overwhelmed us with, with they overwhelmed the case with stuff that didn't even matter or didn't even make sense. But after a month of hearing people say, Jimmy, 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 oh, Jimmy did it. Oh, Jimmy said that. Oh, Jimmy told me that. Oh, Jimmy, yeah, that belonged to Jimmy. And a month of that, I could see how a jury can find me guilty on every single charge. Where a guy could say that he saw me with a firearm. However, they don't have the firearm, and they find me guilty for possessing the firearm. How the federal system works. That these invisible phantom drugs, that these guys could say that I gave them monthly 70 and 80 kilos of, of cocaine while I'm out of the country, that I organized it, that I told them where to go to get it, and so on and so forth. I was just hoping that the jury seen what I was seeing. And, you know, when you have a lawyer that you hope knows your case enough and knows your life enough to where he can also tell a story to rebuke what the government is saying. And then when you find out your lawyer don't even care or even want to or is leaving everything up to the hope, to the beyond the reasonable doubt of what the law states, thinking that these jurors would know what the law is and what beyond the reasonable doubt is after hearing a month full of, of, of evidence. And then you find out that your lawyer ain't even doing the, the, the proper job or know the case enough to fight it. Then you know that you're screwed. And all you can do is sit there as a lame duck, you know, watching your your funeral, man. It's like you're just sitting there watching the procession of your funeral going to the gallows or leaving the gallows uh, after you're beheaded or something. And that's how I sat there. I sat there in shock. 
I couldn't believe that the justice system allowed this kind of stuff to happen. They had no evidence. This is one of the reasons why they had to say that I confessed to some of those things because they had nothing. They had invisible drugs. They had one kilo that I gave to Winston Harris and they made that into a thousand kilo to where they could take millions of legal money from me. Money that I acquired legally from representing Mike Tyson, from representing the game, from representing Wyclef, from doing movies. For 20 years I've been in the, in the music business. For 20 years I've made legal money. For y'all to come and take my property, to take my money, to take everything that I've worked for for 20 years, for y'all to come and say all everything that I've done was illegal because these guys said that I gave them hundreds of kilos is ridiculous. And I am in shock that the justice system even works that way. I am in shock. And that's what I was going through, sitting through that trial for a month and two weeks of just hearing, pointing the fingers at me, that it's me, it's Jimmy, it's Jimmy, it's Jimmy, it's Jimmy. I didn't think the jury was going to believe it. But sure enough, they did, because I was found guilty on every single count. And you know what I realized at that point? That I was the perfect scapegoat for these guys. I was the perfect lane for these prosecutors to make a name of to say in the New York Times that we've finally taken down Jimmy Hinchman. Like this is a game. Like this is, I'm public enemy number one. It was ridiculous to me. It's my honor to introduce to this body our newest senator, Senator Todd Kaminsky. Jimmy's story, although it takes place inside hip-hop music and culture, is at its heart a story of the federal criminal justice system. It is a system that to this day is shrouded in secrecy. Would you believe that FBI agents still don't record any audio or video of any interview or questioning they do? Federal courts do not allow cameras. Federal gag laws keep documents and investigative work product hidden from journalists and the public. It is a system, just like most of our systems in America today, that are outdated, corrupt, and built for the government to lie. It is ingrained in these young prosecutors that justice is just a scorecard. I know that there are moral and ethical individuals inside the system. But I've witnessed up close and observed many federal trials for years now. And I've seen with my own eyes how the system works and how it is set up. I've seen the lies and they are disheartening. As the Honorable Bob Dylan said, couldn't help but make me feel ashamed to live in a land where justice is a game. Couldn't help but make me feel ashamed